Good morning, Harmony. Good morning. Did you guys have a good week? Uh, I shouldn't ask the Cowboys fans, right? Um, we are starting a new series today. So if you've been wondering all these years what's the longest he can go without doing a series, the answer is two weeks. That is the longest, and then I have to get jump into a series. Uh, and we are going to be doing a series that I'm calling the Gospel Colored Glasses. Um, everybody ever had someone tell them you have rose-colored glasses on? Right. And the point is that you're seeing things in a different perspective. You're seeing things in a different way. You're seeing them through a tainted view. And um, it's funny, as a glasses wearer, I know I'm not wearing them now, but as a glasses wearer throughout my life, that always was poignant to me. Um, I remember I had to get glasses in third grade, which uh, for me was devastating because I did not need any help with the nerd factor. Like, I was covering being nerdy very well by myself without glasses. I didn't really need glasses to assist with the nerd points. I had that, I had that locked up. But I remember when we went to go get my glasses, I mean, and also, by the way, do you ever just look back at old pictures and wonder how those things were fashionable? <laughs> the glasses I wore when I first got glasses, they look like aviator sunglasses, but they're clear. So my whole face is just covered by glasses. And I'm, every time I look at those pictures, my parents are like, no, we promised. They were cool back then. And I'm like, there is no way those were ever described as cool. And they're like, no, they were. But it was funny because I, I so badly did not want to get glasses. Uh, I, I didn't want them. They didn't look cool. I played sports, so it was annoying to have to take care of them. I knew I was going to break them which would then lead to conversations about me breaking them and how much money they cost, right? There just was no benefits in my view of getting glasses. And then I went to go pick up my glasses and I put them on and I remember like literally walking out of the doctor's office and being like, Mom, look at the trees. Do you see those leaves? They're amazing. And for me, the reason was is for years, I had just gotten used to a tree was like a brown stick with some green stuff. My eyes were so bad, I, I couldn't make out individual leaves or descriptions or, or see things. And so while I initially hated what they did to me as far as how I looked, once I put them on, and I could see the board, and I could see people's faces, and I could see what things looked like, all of a sudden I realized I didn't really care anymore about whether it made me nerdy or not. Because the benefit of being able to see the world around me was so huge. It was this just mind-boggling moment where you got clarity. And so as Christians, you and I need to realize that all of us should have gone through a moment like that ourselves. Where when we became Christians, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we now look at the world and we don't see it like we used to. There now is these lenses of the gospel that are on our eyes, on our hearts, on our minds, and it changes the way that we see everything. We no longer go through the world and see chaos. We no longer go through the world and see things where God is not present. Instead, we walk around and everything we see falls within the context of God and what He is trying to accomplish. It changes our world. My fear for us is I think that some of us have learned to have these glasses, 
but to only wear them on Sunday mornings. Or to only wear them when we're reading the Bible. Or to only wear them when we're around other Christians. We learn to take these things on and off and we change our view sets based on the circumstances or the settings that we are in. And that is wrong. It's not only wrong from the standpoint of God, but it's also harmful to ourselves. Because it creates an inconsistency in us that is not going to lead us to the things that our hearts and that our souls desire. And so as we go through this series, The Gospel Colored Glasses, we are going to be spending our time in the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a very important book for us because what it is, is it's Paul reaching out to a church that he planted quickly telling them that he loves them and he's thankful for them, and then scolding them for all the unbelievably dumb things that they are doing. And the entire point that he's trying to make as he goes throughout this book is, guys, there is so much inconsistency between what you say you believe, between the truth that you say is in your heart, and the way that you guys are acting every single day. And so I think this is a very important thing for us to talk about. I think it's a very important thing for us to think about because this is what our world says of us. I know I've mentioned it ad nauseum now, but we are losing our youth at unbelievable rates in the church. 90% of the kids who grow up in the church will leave the church and will not come back we may get half of them attempting to come back in their 30s when they have children. So I'm not talking about the kids raised outside of the church by non-believers. I'm talking about the kids raised in the church by believers who came to church on a regular basis. 90% of them, the moment they get to choose, they're out of here. And the sad part is when you talk to those kids about why, it's not what you would hope. Right? You would hope what it is is just simple rebellion. That's teenagers, right? They've always done what mom and dad want. Now that they have freedom, they want to go run a different direction and try things their own way. That's not the answer. What you get from them is, my parents were fake. Church is a waste of time. Because it's a two-hour thing on Sundays where everybody acts like they're something that they're not the rest of the week. You, you, when you read these quotes and these interviews and you talk to these kids, what you find is, is they're just fed up with parents who show up, fake it and act a certain way, and then the rest of the week live like everybody else. And what they're really saying is, I don't need that kind of fakeness in my life. And if I want that, I can do it a lot of different ways. And that's what we do on social media. That's what we do on Facebook. That's what we do on Instagram. I don't need like church to do that too. And so why this book is important to us is that's basically what Paul is calling out. He's talking to a bunch of Instagram Christians who all their pictures and posts make them sound like they're really righteous, good believers. But if you'd actually go live with them and sit with them all day, you'd go, that's not who you are. That's not real. That's not true. And then the point he gets to is for us, where this is more damaging than anything is, is you and I have a different mission. Right? It's one thing to be a hypocritical faker, just individually. 
Right? People, of course, if they realize that you're fake, if they realize you're a hypocrite, they're going to have a negative perception of you and you alone. But as a Christian, think about what that does to our mission. Your mission is not to become the best version of you. Your mission is not to have the most fulfillment that you can have. Your mission by your Savior is to you to go outside these walls and to tell people about God. Amen. It's to build the kingdom and to bring people to Jesus. Amen. You're supposed to go and bring. So when they look at you and go, you're a hypocritical fake person. Not only do they have a negative view then of you, but then they have a negative view of your church, of your God, and of His Word. And so not only does it crush us and our perceptions, but it then starts to negatively impact our ability to do what God asked us to do. And that's where we got to go, no, that's, that's something we got to address. Now, I'm going to be honest with you and just, just very direct here. You're not going to like a lot of things we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Because there are going to be things that you're doing that aren't right. But before we get into that, let me just set why you should actually be excited about that. You're at war with yourself. You have a regenerated soul that Christ has put in you. You have His Spirit, you have His love, and you have His desires beating inside of you. And they know that your fulfillment, that your happiness that your peace comes from the things that God offers. Amen. The problem is, is you're still trapped in the flesh. Amen. And that flesh is pulling you the wrong directions. It is pulling you to darkness. It is pulling you to emptiness. It is pulling you to the sins, trappings of this world. That All they do is temporarily give you enjoyment, but then leave you empty. Now, there's two options we have in that scenario. One is we just ignore that. And you just stay stuck in that battle for the rest of your life being torn between two forces. Or, we actually acknowledge that. We go to God and we ask Him to show us that darkness. We ask Him to show us the things in us that aren't right. And then we have Him help us fight them, change them, and defeat them. Yeah. See, the beauty of uncovering your own sin is not the moment you see the sin. It's that once you know the sin is there, then you can give it over to God. Then you can lay it at His feet. Then you can receive His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy and His power. And you can overcome that which has been trapping you. Amen. And so the majority of us, what we try to do these days is not talk about sin because it makes us uncomfortable and we feel guilty and we feel shameful. But what we miss is that all has to happen so that eventually what you feel is forgiven, at peace, and victorious. Amen. And so yes, there's some ugly steps up front. But if we get through those... We have unbelievable blessing waiting for us. And so my encouragement to you is stick through those tough times and realize that God is leading you through this. The beauty of Him is if you ever get scared on the journey, you already know what He will do for you. He already died on the cross for your sins. There is nothing that God will uncover that will scare Him away. It may scare you, but there's nothing he's going to find where he's going to look at you and go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. 
now that I know that, I'm sorry, we, we can't do this. Right? And for many of us, we have that fear because we've been there in real relationships. Anybody ever had that? Right? You're on the journey with somebody, maybe it's a friend, maybe it, it, it's a, a romantic relationship, and they get to a point where they learn something about you that they didn't know, and it just it changes everything. And sometimes for those people, the revelation's so big, it's like, I don't know that I can look at you like I used to look at you. I don't know that that's possible. I think sometimes people carry that fear into the relationship with God. God knows more about you than you know about yourself. Amen. And what he's already said to you is you in your deepest, darkest moments, you at your ugliest, were still worth him dying for. Thank you. So the only thing you have to be afraid of is self-discovery, not what he thinks of you. We already know what He will do for you at your worst. So if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and jump in. Flip to 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have Paul writing this letter to a church that he's planted. Now it's important to remember the context. It's important to remember the context because each of these churches that Paul plants is in slightly different places. So Corinth is not a Jewish city. So what that means for us is this church was planted in a pagan culture. And why that's important is what it means is, is that their foundation was not morally aligned with God's word. Right? When the apostles would go into a Jewish city or a Jewish place and build a church with Jewish people, well, there was different things that they would have to learn and know and understand. From a moral standpoint, they were on the same page. Right? Old Testament God views murder, stealing, lying, adultery, lust, all those things exactly the same way as he does in the New Testament. And so when a church would be planted in a Jewish place, from a moral standpoint, there wasn't as much new behavior. It was how they already existed. But when a church would be planted in a pagan culture, where there was no Jewish background, this was a whole new world. People didn't view murder the same. They didn't view sex the same. They didn't view lust the same. They didn't view any of these things the same. And so often for them, they were coming to a place where what they first realized was who Jesus was. And then from that truth, had to change all the behaviors. And so that's why we will find with Corinth unique frustrations. I think this is beautiful, though, for you and I, because to be honest, this is more the world we live in. American culture no longer approaches life and values the way that God does. The way we view sex, the way we view money, the way we view popularity, the way we view beauty are nowhere near close to the way that God views those things. And what that means to you is it means daily you are behind enemy lines. You cannot be people who go with the flow. If you go with the flow, you will never end up at the throne of God. The flow will not take you there. It will take you to paganism. It will take you to sin. It will take you to darkness. Which means you have to be people of intent. You have to be people who wake up in the morning and say, I'm going here, I'm going to get there, and nothing's going to stop me. Because if you just kind of lazily float around in life, our culture is taking you far away from God. And that's exactly where these people were. In a culture that every single moment in every single direction was pulling them 
away from God. So let's jump in. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's he doing? He's just writing a letter. He's sent out. This is Paul. I'm writing. I'm actually writing through this man, Sophonies, which means Paul was articulating what God was giving him, and Sophonies is writing it down. And what he's saying to him is, well, we are far apart. We're brothers and sisters. We are the same church. We have the same Lord. We have the same Savior. We're one in this. He's reminding them of that commonality that they have. I thank, this is verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying, I remember you, I pray for you, and I am thankful for what God has already done in your lives. God came to you. He revealed Jesus. Through that you were offered forgiveness and grace. And you have been given the knowledge of who He is. And He has given you everything you guys need to be successful. Everything that you need to be victorious in life. He is reminding them of the good things they already have. Which again, brothers and sisters, is a great way for us to start most days. Right? Before he's going to get into the messiness, which needs to be addressed, he's going to remind them of what they have that's a blessing and remind them of what they have that will power them through the negativity. Amen. I think this is such a huge thing for Christians to understand. I think sometimes when you and I are going through tough times, we act like God is going through the tough times at the same moment with us. And what I mean by that is, I think you sometimes feel like God's discovering the obstacles the same time you are. Right? You're encountering something, a wall's put up, and you're like, oh no, what do I do? And you almost picture God being right next to you like, I don't know, what should we do? That's not how it works. God is not discovering the obstacles you face in the moment you are. In fact, He knew it was there. He's already set aside what you need to accomplish that moment, and it's waiting for you. So while you don't know what's going on, God's walking with you like, we're about to hit an obstacle, but it's okay. I've got all the things set aside that you're going to need to be victorious in this moment if you'll just listen to me. And it's so big for us to know. Because often in these moments of obstacle, what the devil is trying to do is he's trying to create fear. He's trying to create worry because what fear and worry do is they lock us up. They make us dumb. And often in the moments of fear and worry, we don't act logically. We don't make smart decisions. And Satan knows that. And so if we start to realize in all these dark moments that we ever face that God has already been there and already has stashed away everything you need to overcome that moment then you really realize there's nothing to be afraid of. Right? The most treasured, important thing is God has already gotten His hands and is going to take care of. 
And so that fear, you can be worried about fleshly things, worldly things, but the things that really matter, God's got those. He's got them locked up, He's got them protected, and He's been preparing for this moment. He's not taken off guard by it. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Galus, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. And so in this we come to our first important point. And I think it's very important that you and I realize the structure of this book. I would encourage you guys greatly as you study the Bible to read it in order. And what I mean by that is it's, it's very common in our day and age to hear preaching and teaching that's topical. And how topical preaching works is the pastor sits down and goes, you know what, my church is undisciplined. I would never say that about you guys. I'm going to find all the stories about discipline. I'm going to pile them up into a sermon, and we're going to jump from one place to another talking about discipline, because that's what they need. And while there are moments where that is valuable, what we miss in that is sometimes you pull something out because you go, well, this isn't about discipline. This is about unity. So I, can, I don't need that. And what God was actually revealing to us is those things are interconnected. Some of the things that we are going to see happening in the church of Corinth, while they may not seem on their face to be about unity, we will realize by going through this with Paul that they're tied to this starting point. There's a connection between the things that are happening. And what I don't want us to be as people is people who only take care of symptoms but never address the root cause. Right? Have you ever done that in your life where like in a relationship you just address the symptom but you're not addressing what the real problem is? And what happens is you will address that symptom for the rest of your life because you've never stared down what's real. You're ignoring the real problem. And the reason you tend to know that you normally have a root cause problem and not a symptom is a problem is because the thing keeps coming. Right? If every one of your romantic relationships breaks down for lack of commitment, at some point you may need to look at yourself and go, am I doing anything to drive this? I dated 20 different people with 20 different personalities. All look at the world in very different ways, different intelligence, different money situations, different jobs, different backgrounds, all kinds of different things, and all of them, when they're with me, end up at this place. Maybe it's you. Maybe, just maybe. And so we've got to look at these things because sometimes what we're missing is the real issue at hand. 
And brothers and sisters, we are great at this. Because often what we want to do is we want to find the tiniest and smallest thing possible and go, that's where all the problems are. Right? That's where all the problems are. If I can just change that one thing, I'm good to go. It's like I told you last week with me and my workout equipment. The problem isn't the way I eat or I sleep or the lack of working out. It's I have the wrong treadmill. <laughs> the treadmill I have keeps me running up and down, but this new one helps me fall forward, which is the entire difference between physical fitness. If I get that treadmill, I'm going to look like Chris Hemsworth. That's what's going to happen. I don't think that's how it's going to work. The issue isn't the treadmill. The issue is me. Amen. The issue is my desire. The issue is my discipline. The discipline is all the things that I'm going to have to change and do, which are a piece of machinery in my house. But guess what? It's a lot easier to buy that piece of machinery than it is to change my discipline level. So I'll keep buying machines, hoping that eventually that addresses the issue. And so Paul starts here with unity. Now, I think this is very important for us to talk about because this is a complicated issue that if you just were to hear a baseline simple sermon, I think you could walk away with the exact wrong message. God desires for his church to be united. And constantly, as you go throughout the New Testament, you will see him calling his people to be united. And so I want to look at a few things, why it's important to be united, but then I also want to give you the evidence of the moments when we shouldn't be united. Because what I am actually more concerned of in this day and age is not the desire to be united, I'm sorry, not the desire of us to be separated. I am more concerned about the issue of more and more people coming together and glossing over what are huge issues and acting like they're not. And so I want you to think about this in a complex way because I don't want you to walk out with just a very simple, oh, we should all just be get together. Kumbaya. Like, like, does anybody ever see the sticker that says coexist? Yeah. I, in theory, love the idea of coexisting. Right? It is much better to live in a world where people with differences can get together and not kill each other. Right? Can we all agree on that? Amen. I think that's better than a world where we kill each other because of our differences. However, if one of the groups in this coexist group has been taught by their doctrine and by what they believe is the word of God, that they are instructed by God to destroy you because you do not believe what they believe, coexistence is not an option. And pretending that you can make it an option is foolish. You are missing that there is a core foundational thing that is separating you, and if you don't address that, it's not going to work. And so often today where we run into problems is we fall in love with these major big concepts, but we don't actually think about in practicality how will that work out. And so let's look at this and let's first talk about why it's important to be united. Look at Philippians 2.2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So the first most beautiful thing is, why should we want to be united? It brings our Lord joy. Amen. I don't know about you, but like guys, that should be a huge motivator in our lives. It's funny, I actually don't think it is, though. 
I feel like a lot of people try to do the right thing to do the right thing. Do you ever think about when you do what God asks, it brings a smile to His face? Like, do you think about, like, right now, our Lord in heaven is joyous because we're here in His Word as the body worshiping Him? I love knowing that. Because you know what I know? I do a lot of things throughout the week that make Him shake His head. I do a lot of things throughout the week where he's got to be like, Luke, again? Really? Come on! So when there are moments where I know that I can bring a smile to his face, that's awesome. The things that he's done for me, the joy that he's brought my life, the happiness I have because of him, any chance I get to return the favor, I should jump at that. And you'll notice with God, this is often the motive. You and I, where we often get off pace with God when it comes to obedience, is you and I are looking, should I obey Him because it makes sense to me? No. God's never really asking you to obey Him because it's logical to you. What God is normally asking you is, do you love me enough to do what I'm asking? I get you don't want to. I get you don't like it. But I'm asking based on our relationship, could you do this for me? And it's funny because throughout Scripture you'll find regular moments where people who love God will be asked by Him to do something and you get that answer from them where they're like, I don't really want to, but for you, Lord, I will. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, that's a lot of being a disciple. A lot of the time, God is asking you to do things that don't make sense to you. You don't want to do Your flesh is pulling you the opposite direction. But what happens is, you're not in love with the religion. You're not in love with the philosophy. You're in love with God. Amen. And so when He goes, I need you to do this, you go, really? For you, I will. For you, I will. I don't want to. I'm not excited about it, but for you, I will. And now that you're smiling because I'm doing it for you, I feel good about it. Complete his joy by being of one mind. See, what we really need to realize about unity is what drives it apart is arrogance and pride. Right? What drives us apart is we get into an argument and we go, I'm right, you're wrong. And I am not willing to give that ground. I am not willing to say that I'm wrong. I am right here. And so where a lot of this falls apart is, is it gets into a battle where we exclude God because, let's be real, if two toddlers are in a room arguing about who's the smartest, what do all the adults feel about that conversation? You guys can't even wipe your own bums. You can't even tie your own shoes. You're going to debate who's a genius in here? None of you are geniuses in here. This is the dumbest argument in the history of mankind. That's how God feels when you and I are arguing about which one of us is more brilliant than the other. He's like, none of you are brilliant. This is a dumb argument. And what he realizes is if we're constantly in his presence, then you and I know we're not God. We know we are way lower than him, and we realize arguing about arrogance is a dumb thing. So we won't do it. The only thing that ever should really drive us into these kind of arguments is when someone wants to go, your God's wrong. That's a different story. 
And you'll notice that with a lot of biblical heroes. David was fine not being a warrior until he heard someone go, your God is a fool. Then all of a sudden that little shepherd boy went, what? You're going to say my God is a fool. No, you're not. I think you could have called David a fool all day long. But the moment you called his God a fool, he went, uh-uh, that I won't stand for. That has to be addressed. And so one of the things we see here is God is pulling us to be united because we are focused in humility on Him. And that is what is pulling us together. Look at Colossians 3.14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here's what we're also learning about being united. Being united comes not only from this lack of pride, but it comes from this love and sacrifice. People are going to hurt you. That's what we do. All of us are sinners. Every single one of us. And if you put sinners in life together, guess what they do? They hurt each other. Just happens. But the beauty of Christianity is we have these concepts of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, which allow us to go, you know what? The love will cover over the multitude of sins. I'm not delusional to think you will never hurt me. I know you will, but in those moments when you do, it is love that will fill those wounds and allow us to keep moving forward. And so the other reason that unity is so important in the church is not only does it mean that you have a humble spirit, but it means you have a loving spirit. Because you have people that when they're wronged or hurt, instead of going, I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to remember what you did to me. Oh, you see if I forget that. Instead, those people go, I love you. I forgive you. Let's move on. This isn't about equal scales. This is about us being together. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite quotes about unity focuses on how important it is for us to be centered on Christ. And so before we get into exactly that place, let me explain to you the other thing that happens that brings us to unity. The unity comes from not only love and humility, but that we have a central place to come back to. That we have an anchor. When I do pre-marriage counseling with people who are not equally yoked, meaning one is a believer and one is not. What my concern for them always is, is not the state of their relationship today. It's what will happen when real obstacles come into their lives. See, in this world that you and I live in, where things have become so relative, nobody believes in absolute truth anymore. No one wants to say that there's black and white, that there's right and there's wrong. Everybody wants to say, well, it depends. Depends on the situation, depends on the people, depends on the circumstances. The problem with that is you can always justify why to do the wrong thing. And so when you run into a believer and non-believer in a marriage together, here's what I know. You will face the most difficult situations together. You will face them in unbelievably close proximity. You will often disagree about things that you are very, very passionate about. And in those moments, how do you then overcome your differences to get to a solution? 
Well, for the believer, it's easier because here's what ends up happening. When me and Nicole argue, what we end up going to is, what does God's Word say about this? And it works because I cherish that Word like she cherishes that Word. We both believe that's the infallible, perfect Word of God. And so if we go to it and we see an answer that addresses our situation, we both go, we respect that. We both have said, we submit to it. And we both in that moment then go, we will let Christ lead in this. And this is what we will do. And that's what gets us through the moments where my viewpoint and her viewpoint are very different. We submit to God's viewpoint. What happens though, if you respect the word and you submit to the word, but the other person doesn't? They don't even think there is a God. They think your book is some old document written thousands of years ago. It's a fairy tale. So when you are lost and you come to this for truth and righteousness and go, here's what my God is saying. They're going to go, who cares what your God says? Here's what Dr. Seuss says. Should we go by that? And all of a sudden what you find is you were okay in these moments where you were in agreement. But now that you've hit an impasse, what do you do now? And that's exactly the same direction for us when it comes to unity as a church. We are to be unified as a church as long as that unity does not come at the price of us standing on the Word. If for us to be unified, that means I have to let you have different definitions of who Jesus is, what salvation is, whether the Bible is true or not. In those moments, that's when we go, no. Unity is not worth that. Which frankly, brothers and sisters, is what you're seeing today. There's a term in the modern church called universalism, which basically says, if somebody tells you they're a Christian, they're a Christian. You shouldn't question that. Even if that means they don't actually think Jesus is the Son of God. Even if that means they don't think Jesus was actually a real person. Even if that means they don't think the Bible is the Word of God and that it's perfect. And here's what I would say to that, brothers and sisters. If we're being united, but we have completely different things on that, what are we being united in? But you see that happening today. You see that happening where people go, those things are just details. They don't matter. And so where we've got to be balanced in this is there are certain things in our relationships as a church that we need to move on from. We should never split as a church because we can't decide what color the carpet should be. We should never split as a church because we can't determine whether we like music from the 2000s or we like music from the 80s or we like music from the 1800s. Which we laugh at, but do you realize that's the number two reason churches split in the country? Worship style? Can you understand that? Think about what that says. I love you, but not enough to listen to music I don't like. I would rather tear the church apart so we can listen to music that I like versus us staying together as a family to listen to music I don't really like. It happens all the time. And so what we got to look at is how do we then determine what we fight for and what we don't? Well, let's look at a few passages here. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is giving instruction to a young elder about how he should lead his church. And this is what he warns them. He said, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. They'll be treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. What's he saying? There will be a group of people who will want to tell you, I'm a believer. But then they will deny anything in this book that they don't like. We run into that all the time. We run into the buffet Christian who goes, well, I really like the Savior part, don't so much like the Lord part, so we'll ignore that. I really like this idea that you've shaped me, made me, and have plans for my future. That's awesome. Don't really like this whole that I need to submit and obey you. So we're going to forget that part. You don't get to pick and choose what you want. You either take the truth he gives you or you don't take the truth he gives you. And so what Paul is instructing us is in those moments where we run into people where they're going, hey, I want to be your buddy. I want to be your Christian brother. I want us to be one. But to do that, I need you to take part of the Bible and just throw it out. We don't do that. We don't do that. Because really in that moment, what is being asked of us is not whether we will love each other. It's will you love this person more than you love your Lord? For that unity to exist, what is, being ha what is happening is you're being asked to choose. Would you rather be right with your God and say that he is honest and trustworthy and true, or would you rather be with these people? And God is very clear, if we're ever in those positions, we know where we stand. We stand with the one that made us. We stand with the one that died for us. We stand with the one that resurrected us. That's who we stand with. Look as he continues. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Yanis and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. Just as Yanis and Abba's folly was always, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance by persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me in Antioch, at Icium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so the point he says is they will only have this focus to give you this outward perception of growth, but they're not really growing. They're always moving on to something new. They're always shifting to something else. But this core thing, the easy stuff, they don't get. And so like brothers and sisters, what I just want to like hit you with real quick, some of you come to me for advice in your lives. And you will lay out these very complicated situations that you're in and go, I don't know what God wants me to do. 
Meanwhile, there is a very basic situation in your life that God is unbelievably clear on what to do, and you're ignoring Him. Brothers and sisters, do not expect God to come in and solve your unbelievably complicated situations when you are ignoring the advice He is clearly giving you on simple things. There are so many of us that know exactly what God wants us to do in a certain situation, but we just don't want to talk about it. So we point ourselves over here. Well, this is complicated. I don't know what to do over here. Well, stop looking at that. How about this? How about this? Why are you going directly against what your God has told you to do? And you know it. Why? Why is that happening? In Romans 16, it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They deceive the hearts of the naive. They sound great, but they're not preaching the truth. They're not leading people the right way. And notice what he says, that cause division. Why? Contrary to the doctrine. And so as you and I start to look at this, this is how it breaks down, and it's very simple. If the division that you and I have is about anything where there's not a black and white biblical case, we should lean towards love, mercy, and forgiveness. And if our argument that we are having is a black and white biblical issue where there is only one way to look at it through Scripture, and on the other side of the argument there is no Scripture, then on those we stand firm. It's why I have friends who are five-point Calvinists, and I am not. Because when I listen to their biblical perspective and why they form that thing, I see them going into God's Word. I see them going through the verses. I see them praying to the Lord. I see them desiring to know His will. And when they see me doing it, and even though we're at a contrary place, they see me doing the same work. And what we've agreed to is, we're just going to agree to disagree on this issue. It seems like for thousands of years, very godly biblical people have come at this from two different places and gotten to different answers. And since we can both make biblical arguments out of love and respect, guess what? We'll call each other brothers and we'll ask Jesus when we get to heaven which one of us was right. It's why I've been in schools where I have seen pastors who won't talk to each other because they're arguing about what's going to happen at the end times. And while I have my leanings, do you know what my basic answer is? I'm just going to do what Jesus asks. When he shows up and goes, it's time to go, I'm not going to be like, wait a minute, no it's not. We're supposed to be here for another seven years before this occurs. If Jesus shows up and says, it's time to go, I'm like, let's go. And guess what? If my theories on how it plays out are wrong, I'm really not going to be concerned about it when he shows up. I hope when he shows up, I'm going to be more concerned. Like, he's here. This is awesome. Then about, wait a minute, this did not match my timeline. I don't think this is accurate. And so there are some of these things that we just choose to bicker and argue about. And frankly, folks, a lot of them nowadays aren't even that theological. Nowadays, it's music. It's how the room's designed. It's about what denomination name's on the sign. Guess what? None of you are going to heaven because you're Baptist. 
Now, I've always been a Baptist because I find Baptists, at least in my experience, have beholden themselves to the Word of God. That's why I'm here. But I've been at churches that aren't a Baptist church. I go where they preach the Word. That's what I submit myself to. Now, vice versa, brothers and sisters, if we find ourselves in an argument about who Jesus is, if we find ourselves arguing with somebody about whether you can earn your salvation or whether it's a gift, those things we will be divided on. Because the moment you want to tell me that I earned my salvation and it wasn't a gift from God, well, you've changed who my God is. You've diminished the sacrifice He made for me. And you are asking me to deny that word. That's not going to happen. I will never choose unity with man over unity with my God. And so, brothers and sisters, this is where you have to be smart in your own lives about how you proceed down this path. On those things where God's word is not unbelievably clear, or it's not even a biblical matter, right? You're not going to find in here whether we should be singing off of PowerPoints or hymnals. Not covered. But love, mercy, and forgiveness lead you. Amen. And allow Christ to pull you together. Only really on those core things where it's so clear what His Word says that that's where you put your feet in and go, no, I won't give that ground. A.W. Tozer is a pastor and author, and I've always loved this quote. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Do you get what his point is? He says, if you go in and you tune one piano, and then you take that piano to another piano, and you tune the next one to that one, and then you take this one, and you tune the next one to that one, and you keep doing this along the line, eventually the 100th piano will not sound like the first one. However, if there is one tuning fork, one standard, and individually, all of them get tuned to that. When you put them in the same room, they will all sound the same. Amen. And so ultimately, what his point is, is for you and I to be united, doesn't come from you and I showing up at church going, going to be united. <laughs> it shows up from you and I coming to church going, I am a servant of Christ and I will obey him. Amen. And when a hundred people are in the room who all go, I am a servant of Christ and I will obey him, then what we will find is those hundred people are unified. Amen. Vice versa, if those hundred people walk into the room going, the goal is we will never fight, they will actually never be unified. They will try to fake it. They will try to look like it. But they will fail. And so the way that you and I achieve this is you and I become unbelievably passionate about hearing the voice of our God and obeying our God. If we do that, then we can all be pulled together by that love, by that spirit. Let God be the tuning fork of your life. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us. Father, I pray that as you look at this church that you will pull out any of the things in our spirits, in our minds, in our hearts, Lord, that do not submit themselves to you. Father, I pray that you will help us be unified 
and one because we are all focused and in tune to you, Lord. Father, I pray that this is a church that is humble in spirit, a church that is focused, Lord, only on being an instrument in your hand that builds your kingdom and spreads your gospel. Father, I pray that as we go throughout this series that you will give us the humility, Lord, to hear your word and your truth. And that, Father, even when it reveals to us things we'd rather not see, that we rejoice in them, knowing that by being aware of them it is your power, your grace, and your forgiveness that can come in and heal them. Father, we pray that you will use us to do mighty things. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. ask Brother Joe to come forward with me. Uh, Brother James to be in the back. And as Maria is singing, if there's anything that you would like to pray about, feel free to come forward. And again, as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, please seek us out afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. Maria. Change my heart, oh God. Let's stand. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh
God's people said, Amen. Amen. Alright, two things for you. One, on the 20th of January, I'm asking for all parents of elementary and high school or middle school students to stay for about 15 minutes. Uh, we want to talk about some of the things that we're trying to do this year with the children and the youth. And want to fill you guys in on that because we're going to need your help. So that's January 20th, after service. We'll meet in the fellowship hall for about 15 minutes and just talk about some of the game plans for the kids and the youth. Um, the second thing is on February 3rd, that's a Sunday, we will be ordaining um, our two men who have been set aside to be deacons, that is uh, Brother Pablo and Brother Matt. And so um, that service, what we're going to do that day is we will not have Spanish service in the morning. We will have one service at 11 a.m. Uh, for the whole congregation. Uh, we will do regular worship, the, service will, or the uh, sermon will be on service, and then we will ordain those men at the end. I am asking, we have set these si uh, gentlemen aside for over a year now, um, but as always, what we want is to make sure that this is something the church supports. So if there is any questions, concerns, feedback, comments, anything that you have, please seek myself or Brother Joe out so we can go ahead and talk about those. We're very excited about what God has been doing in these men's lives and excited to have them coming uh, to help lead the flock. So keep those two dates in mind. All right, I love you guys. It's always a blessing to worship with you. Please remember, you've been given a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. And you have a mission, which is to go make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. May you have a great week. I love you all. Amen. Ain't no 